Christchurch, New Malden, 18th of July 2021. Becky Mills speaking in the series, Hope Amid the Broken Signposts, The Attraction of Beauty. I expect some of you will be surprised that beauty figures along with justice, freedom, spirituality, love, truth and power in this series in helping us make sense of the world. We live in a broken world, don't we, where beauty sits alongside ugliness, distortion, vileness and darkness. We can sometimes catch a glimpse, though, of the redemptive qualities of beauty. Its sweetness can help us tolerate the most unbearable of circumstances. A village ravaged by disease, ringed by magnificent mountains. A Nazi commandant falling asleep to the strains of Bach played by Jewish inmates. Cambodian killing fields blooming with beautiful flowers. The death of a close relative in peaceful surrender after a long illness. The war poetry of Wilfred Owen, or Beethoven's first string quartet evoking the tragic beauty of Romeo and Juliet. But is beauty just a distraction from the sight of worldly suffering? Why does beauty have such a power to attract us and evoke an immediate reaction? Does our delight in beauty point towards a creator who is the complete expression of beauty in all its fullness? Does the Christian message of redemptive beauty give us hope in a broken world? Does beauty point to real and lasting meaning? Philosophers have struggled over the centuries to define beauty. Qualities such as symmetry and proportion, color and radiance are often used to explain an appearance which attracts us and gives us pleasure and delight. Symmetry and proportion may well be important in our appreciation of architecture, for instance, but not so important when it comes to judging the, piece, um, the beauty of a piece of music or the beauty of someone's face. A recent episode of QI exploded the myth that, that symmetry makes a beautiful face. We saw digitally altered photos of the people taking part so that their faces became perfectly symmetrical. Not only did they not look beautiful, they also looked completely distorted. And someone may well be described as beautiful whose features are not perfectly in proportion, like Barbara Streisand. This is a photo of her taken in the 60s, probably way before most of your time. When I began my course on Christianity and the arts, I was very surprised to learn that beauty, until the Enlightenment, was considered, was considered as important sorry, as goodness and truth. Beauty, along with goodness and truth, according to medieval thinkers, was something that we pursue for its own sake. The argument runs like this. Why believe X? Because it's true, and we need no further explanation. Why want Y? Because it's good, and we need no further explanation. Why look at Z? Answer, because it's beautiful, and we need no further explanation. This line of thinking, the idea that we can pursue certain things and not others, 
for their own sake, was based on the belief that goodness, beauty and truth were all qualities of God. He was the ultimate expression of those things. We're powerfully attracted to those things, desire those things, stretch towards those things because we're made in his image. Beauty, goodness and truth find their completion in him. And that's the reason why they were all called and still are by some ultimate values. We're all made in the image of God, yet we are flawed. So that perfect expression of beauty, goodness and truth is broken in the embodied world in which we live. It's a broken signpost, but it still points towards the destination of that signpost, which is God. In our postmodern world, we deconstruct everything. It's no longer enough to say something is true, good, or beautiful. We ask ourselves questions like, well, how do we know something is true? How do we work out that something is good? And we could use the word beautiful to describe something that attracts some and repels others. Because of all these uncertainties, the idea of the beauty of God has been split off from our experience of him. Because beauty in the postmodern world has been emptied of all moral meaning. Neither can it be described or pinned down. Hence the much-used cliché, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Many philosophers prefer to use the word sublime to describe the moment when we're confronted with the awesomeness of God, revealed in the immensity of the natural world. According to them, we come away from such an experience with a deep sense of our own superiority. Human reason swiftly recovers from that sense of being dwarfed by infinitude. And the experience of beauty is relegated to an appreciation of fine art, music and architecture and detached from our experience of God. But in the 21st century, beauty is making a comeback and not just in the theology of Tom Wright in his very readable book, Broken Signposts, on which this series of sermons is based. There's a massive movement in contemporary philosophy and theology to bring back the theological meaning of beauty. So if beauty is an all-important quality of God, along with goodness and truth, as theologians such as Tom Wright would argue, why doesn't the Bible say much about the beauty of God? I found just one example in Psalm 27, where the psalmist talks about his ardent desire for God. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. If we look more closely, though, we see that the idea of beauty is linked with the idea of glory. The Hebrew words tipara and tiperet mean both beauty and glory. These words often refer to beauty, especially in the sense of adornment or finery, or to some other quality that's praiseworthy, such as the glory of young men, or the beauty of young men is their strength in Proverbs. A crown of beauty or a crown of glory is used to describe the wisdom that comes from keeping God's commands, also in Proverbs. 
In Exodus, the sacred vestments worn by the high priest Aaron and his sons are made for glory and beauty. Beauty expresses the dignity of the bearer and conjures up a vision of glory. So I think we can be justified in using the terms beauty and glory interchangeably. Glory is radiant beauty which shines forth, attracts and enthralls us like the beauty of a stained glass window which can only be seen in all its splendour when the light shines through it. We catch a glimpse of the transformative beauty or glory of God in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul unites vision and rapture with transformation. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The visible and transformative glory or beauty of the Lord is in fact deeply rooted in scriptural thinking. In Exodus, Moses asks of God, now show me your glory. God was true to his promise, and Moses, after conversing with God, had to cover his face before the people so as not to terrify him with the radiance of God's reflected glory. There are many other Bible verses that refer to God's beauty, glory and splendour reflected in the natural world and in the character of human beings. The end-time vision in Zechariah says, The Lord their God will save his people on that day, as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. And of course, in the vision of the new heaven and new earth in Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The author of the Gospel of John states in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here is our link between beauty, goodness and truth I touched on earlier. In writing, made his dwelling among us, John may well have been thinking of the tabernacle in the desert in the book of Exodus, the focus of God's presence, lavishly, and exquisitely gilded and bejeweled, inspiring love, awe, and worship among the people. And after the tabernacle of the Holy of Holies was, was, and after the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies was placed in the temple in Jerusalem. The story of Jesus is the story of the unveiling of God's glory, God's beauty. Jesus is the shape of the divine being in all its fullness. And through him, we are drawn into the source of divine life and transformed by its beauty and radiance. We are summoned back into the beauty of the embodied world as God meant it to be, the glory of new creation. Being made in the image of God means that we were designed to reflect his beauty. Tom Wright says, John's haunting prologue functions like a great doorway inviting us into a house that is itself filled corridor by corridor, room by room 
with more beauty. Tom Wright makes the raising of Lazarus in John 11, 1 to 14, a key to Jesus unveiling God's glory because the central action of the story is all about new life. The dialogue is swift and poignant. Take away the stone, says Jesus, said, says Jesus. But master, protests Martha, there'll be a smell. It's the fourth day already. Didn't I tell you, said Jesus, that if you believed, you would see God's glory. So they take the stone away. After a prayer of thanksgiving, Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes out, still wrapped in his grave clothes. New life bursts into a world still framed by death. God's redemptive beauty shines forth in this story. But the place where the divine glory is fully and finally revealed is the resurrection of Jesus. Lazarus comes out still wrapped in linen strips. He's still destined to die one day in the future. But Jesus leaves his grave clothes behind. Again, in the account of Jesus' resurrection, Tom Wright argues, John may well have been thinking again of the tabernacle in the desert. Because the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the box where the Torah was kept in the Holy of Holies, was called the mercy seat. The place where God had promised to come and meet with his people. At each end of the mercy seat were two angels carved exquisitely out of gold. This image is reflected in John's description of the empty tomb. In John 20, 11, 12, it says, 11 to 12, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. God has met with his people on the mercy seat once and for all time. He descended into the silence of death, then offered himself anew as a radiant and indestructible beauty, forever present among those who love him. Transformative beauty emerges from the corruption of death itself to make all things new. So, our attraction to beauty leads us back into the presence of God, a God of beauty in the fullest imaginable sense. We can't offer our attraction to beauty as proof of God's existence or of his character, but when we're confronted with the beauty of redeeming love, it helps us to make sense of the human condition. It helps us find meaning and purpose. Christianity tells a story of hope in our broken world of ugliness, death and decay. A new model of human community which finds its fulfillment in sacrifice. The earliest Christian confession, Jesus is Lord, meant that the one who suffered violence and rejection was raised up by God as the true form of divine beauty, untouched 
by human hideousness, yet still present in human history. Without Jesus, the beauty of the Creator would be shapeless and insubstantial. He exemplifies the fullness of the beauty and glory of God. How can we not be enraptured by the vision of the beauty of God and inspired to live a life that is informed and transformed by it? How can we not be filled with a desire to reflect God's beauty in the way we live our lives? The Holy Spirit is the beautifier and bestower of God's radiance and splendor. Call upon him to help you live a life that is informed and transformed by God's glory. Scripture and tradition teach that the continuing story of hideousness, death and decay is a story that is not yet ended. It has not yet been given its final resolution or shape. It's still bittersweet. But the light of the new creation has dawned with the resurrection of Jesus and humanity's final liberation from the ugliness of sin will take place on the last day. Then there will be an everlasting affirmation of the beauty of creation and a condemnation of everything that stands against it. Christianity is a story of unsurpassed beauty in, in which we and all of creation can participate. Surely we can have no more persuasive a story than this one.